Thank you for joining us for Time in the Chapel. Each week we eagerly try to discover what God has been saying to us since time began and even further back than that. Sometimes it's right on the surface. Sometimes we have to dive a little bit deeper, but either way we do our best, lean not on our own understanding, in all our ways acknowledge Him and expect that He will direct our paths. So grab your Bible, prepare your hearts and minds, hit the pause button long enough to pray for the help of the Holy Spirit, and then join me as we open up the treasures of God's Word. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Fret not thyself because of Him who prospereth in His way, because of the man who bringeth wicked devices to pass. If you're a chapel regular, then that verse is familiar to you. Psalm 37 is a favorite of ours, and we teach from it regularly. But I must say, to the modern ear, verse 7, as written in the King James, is liable to be misunderstood. And if there's one thing that we try to do around here, it's try to make sure that you understand all of God's Word as much as humanly possible. We never take anything for granted. And so, as you know, we'll dig deep in the interest of moving that goal forward, that goal being your better understanding of His Word. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently. You know, I love the King James Version of the Bible for no particular reason. I just do. I guess that's not so true. There are particular reasons why I love the King James. If if you've read the story or you know the story, the history of the putting together of that book, you cannot help but to be impressed with the complete desire of those leading the project of putting together the King James, their desire to make sure that the Bible is as accurate as possible in the English language. I love it for that. They didn't take the time to make it sound flowery or to improve the betterment of the church or to to do anything other than to make sure that you as the English-speaking Christian would understand it. That's why I love it. Nonetheless, from time to time, the King James can be a bit of a head-scratcher. Do you see the word rest there? It's translating the Hebrew word mem. According to Strong's Hebrew and Greek dictionary, mem simply means to stop. The complete word study dictionary says that mem depicts the state of being motionless. That doesn't sound like our word rest. Now, I don't want you to think that the word rest is incorrect, but it just may take a little more thought to make it fit the intent of this verse. You see, language evolves over time. Now, I hesitate to say that that's natural for language, but it is nonetheless common and seemingly from the evidence inevitable. When the King James translators put that word rest there, I believe it was appropriate, given the historical meaning of the word rest, especially the meaning of the word rest at that time. Now, believe it or not, at the end of the 16th century and into the 17th century, about the time that the King James was being put together— The English language as we know it today was just really starting to take shape. And there are those who, by the way, credit the King James, at least partially, for contributing to the full evolution of the English language as we speak it today. However, that being said, quite a few words 
that ended up in the Bible had in their origin in what linguists today call Old English, sometimes called Anglo-Saxon. And this is sort of what I mean when I say that languages do evolve over time. At least part of the English language comes from the Anglo-Saxon. And so a lot of the words that ended up in the King James were words that were beginning to evolve from that old form of English. The word rest, as it appears in Psalm 37, verse 7, comes from the Old English restand or restand, which means, listen to this, to be without motion, be undisturbed. Be free from what disquiets, stand or lie as upon a support or basis. That was what the word rest evolved from. Restand meant those things. Motionless, undisturbed, free from what disquiets, standing or lying upon a support or basis. Today, we think of rest as just kind of plopping down on a couch somewhere and that, you know, that silent film format with our hand on our forehead, sort of the world is too much for me. That's the way we look at the word rest today. That was not the intention of the King James translator. The, the translators, they did not intend you to get that impression of that original Hebrew word. You mus musicians out there know that there's a musical notation called a rest. Now, this doesn't mean to take a nap, does it? If you're a musician, you know that this doesn't mean you lay your head down gather up all your sheet music and sort of fall asleep. That's not what the rest in that musical notation means. It means to stop temporarily playing whatever you were playing for the amount of musical time indicated by the specific shape of the rest. If you play music, you know that when you come to a rest, it just means stop, but with an anticipation that you will begin again when the instructions change. Psalm 37 verse 7, rest in the Lord does not mean that we lay our head down for a little shut-eye. Now, of course, that's, that's not a bad thing, but that isn't what's going on here. No fault of the word rest, it's the fault of the evolution of our understanding of the word rest. You see, this is better explained when you realize that Psalm 37.7, that first part of it, is actually a two-part command. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for Him. This is an anticipatory rest. It means to hold fast. Now, this is such an intense verse, believe it or not, that it took me several days just to really figure out how to properly express it. And even before we went on the air, I prayed that God would help me. I was not confident that I was going to be able to properly express to you what Psalm 37.7 means. I pray continuously for that. Let's give it a shot. Rest and wait patiently. Now, Psalm 37.7 is written as if assuming that you're a true child of God. I honestly believe that you must be a true believer to really get the point. First, there is the resting. Now, there are other English translations of the Bible that have here in this place, they have the word hold still or the phrase hold still. 
or be still, or be silent. As we said, we could simply put the word stop. But there is this next part, translated into King James as wait patiently. Wait patiently is the context in which we are to rest. So we are to be resting in patient waiting. That's the difficult part because I don't think we can adequately string words together in the English to pass on the proper meaning. And so this is the way I see it from the original. Rest and wait patiently is simply not enough. It, it, it doesn't properly express the intensity of the original expression. You see, the, the English phrase, wait patiently, is translating the Hebrew word chul or hil. Now, it has that guttural sound that's very familiar in the Semitic languages, chul or hil. Remember Ayatollah Khomeini, same thing. We actually wrote the name Khomeini with the K and an H. That's sort of the same phonetic spelling you can use here, chul. Or heal. Now, the word chul is a primitive root word in the Hebrew. That's what linguists call it, a root word. Now, anything that is a Hebrew root word is an old word that's used to form other later Hebrew words. So, there are words that are built on the chul word. But originally, the original basic meaning of hul is to, now listen to this, to twist or twirl. That's what hul means. Remember, hul is the original Hebrew word that we now understand to mean wait patiently. The original Hebrew word means to twist or, the, or to twirl. Isn't that interesting? to twist or twirl, but how in the world did it get translated into the phrase, wait patiently? Now, part of that is cultural. Many people that uh, analyze the King James Bible see that many of the translated words, many of the phrases that ended up in the 1611 original version of the King James had behind it the cultural understanding at the time. And this may be one of those things. Wait patiently and twist to twist or to twirl don't seem like they match up. So this is why we do these things. And this is why I encourage you to dig deeper into your Bible. To, to be frank, you don't need me to do that. You can do this on your own, and full 50% of what we do here is to try to encourage you to do this on your own. Listen, there are times when you pick up your Bible, and it's 3.30 in the morning, and you're wrestling with something from your spiritual life, and you, and you want God's Word to speak to you. I'm not right there with you to help you through that. You've got to learn that you can dig these things out too. I'm no different than you. I'm not a Bible scholar. I'm not a pastor. This week I had somebody say that I'm in a pastoral capacity, is the way that person put it. I had to correct them. I'm not a pastor. Hanging on my wall, there's no degrees from many seminaries or Bible colleges. I have a degree from the University of Miami in business. I have a degree hanging on my wall from Embry-Riddle, Aeronautical University and what's called professional aeronautics. My background is aviation and business. I just love God's Word so much, I take the time to dig it out. The way that I understand hul, the original Hebrew word, 
is that it's expressing a type of pain, believe it or not, but not the type of pain that's dreaded, but a pain that carries with it an anticipation of relief. Pain may be strong. It doesn't have to be strong, but it might be strong. Maybe discomfort, maybe agitation. Now you can see where the twisting and the twirling is coming from. When you twist something or twirl something, don't you feel the, the tension to go back to its original shape? That's what this word means. So we are to wait patiently. There's something that we're waiting for that's discomforting. It's uncomfortable, but we know when it unwinds, it will feel right. For example, the word cool, cool, is very often used in the Bible with reference to, get this, childbirth. Now, you mothers understand the twisting and the twirling pain. Now, this is kind of difficult for a modern person, especially a, a modern man, to describe. But going into labor, especially for the ancient Hebrew wo woman, wasn't or isn't something to avoid at all costs, but rather as something, although grievously unpleasant, it's something that precedes an incredibly joyous occasion. It's something that you go through because in the end of it, you know there is a great blessing of sorts. Again, this is what Psalm 37, 7 is trying to teach us rest and wait patiently. Yes, I know it's uncomfortable. Yes, I know it's painful. Yes, I know that you feel like you're being bent out of shape. But it's worth it. It's something that you want to go through. We have a common saying that might help just a bit. We often tell people who are suffering to grin and bear it. We tell people to grin and bear it when we want them to know that the pain will eventually give way to a positive end if we'll only allow it to run its course. As best I can, I believe this reflects the original intent of this first part of Psalm 37, 7. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Hang in there. Hold still. I believe we have other popular sayings that properly, far better than rest and wait patiently, express what Psalm 37, 7 is saying. Have you ever heard Hold your horses? How about cool your jets? Both of those things are expressions. They may sound silly to you, and they are a bit silly. But they, I believe, adequately describe this building, binding tension that if allowed to run its course would cause problems. If you don't hold your rearing horses, who knows what direction they'll go in. If you don't cool your jets, you'll maybe perhaps over-pursue your target. Rest and wait patiently. I know you love the Lord. I know you want to do everything for Him. Just rest and wait patiently. These expressions infer a burning, boiling, forceful movement that must be tempered. Psalm 37, 7, as expressed in the contemporary English version of the Bible. We don't quote that one very much, but I believe it helps here. Be patient and trust the Lord. Don't let it bother you when all goes well for those who do sinful things. Now, I'm, I'm sure by now you're saying, John, I didn't just fall off the turnip truck. You tell me, John, I didn't just fall off the turnip truck. Well, that's another one of those 
obscure sayings that just sounds like I don't want to know its origin, but please continue. You say, I know my Bible. Listen, I've been going to church all my life. You're not the first one to break the news of Psalm 37, 7. I've heard it a thousand times, but here's the problem. Every time I try to apply it, I never feel any better. I've never been able to rest in the Lord and wait patiently, no matter what. You're preaching to the choir. Now, I do admit this is a very famous verse. Pastors, preachers, and priests have been quoting it and teaching it and expounding on it since the very dawn of the church. You can read commentary on this psalm, believe it or not, that goes all the way back to the first century A.D. This is a well-preached-upon verse. Even significantly farther back than that, we can imagine the leaders of the synagogues and the heads of the individual family worship in Israel have used this wonderful psalm to guide and direct and focus the child of God. But listen, just because something is well known doesn't mean it's well understood. Wait patiently. Rest and wait patiently on the Lord. You'll agree with me that it's rare that anyone has gotten that right. NASA tells us that their next mission to Mars is scheduled to launch around July of August of next year, of 2020. This program was recorded in, I'm sorry, that's two years. This program was recorded in 2018, two years from now, July, August 2020. They say the next mission to Mars will begin. Now they're saying, well, that seems like a little far out. Well, they tell us that the there's a reason behind that. They say that the orbits of Mars and Earth will be optimal for an efficient journey, meaning that the cost for the best for cost and time. July, August time frame of 2020 is the best time for them to launch this based on the lineup of the planets. But even then, under those ideal astronomic conditions, they tell us it's still going to take six or seven months to get there. But when you realize that this is a trip of over 93 million miles, six or seven months doesn't really seem all that bad. And it actually seems rather miraculous when you take into account that space is so vast, that it's so dark, and that everything in space is constantly moving. And when I say moving, I mean it's moving. The NASA spaceship will be leaving a planet, that's our planet, that's moving at 67,000 miles per hour. No wonder it's so windy outside. 67,000 miles an hour itself will reach a top speed of around 75,000 miles per hour, and it's going to try to hit a precise spot on Mars six months later, which will be in itself traveling 54,000 miles per hour. Now, gathering all of those facts, that sounds impossible. But it's not. You know how they overcome all of those enormities? They follow a plan. With the right plan, what seems impossible becomes a reality. That's how they do it. 
there is step one, check alignment of planets. Step two, gas up the rocket and so on. Each step is vital to achieving the impossible. It's so impossible that if one step is left out, if one step is ignored, the whole thing is ruined. They may still try it, but it will fail if they don't follow the steps. You start ignoring steps, and what you made routine, a matter of course, a sure thing, you deviate from the plan and you put your task right back in the impossible category. You and I both know that resting and waiting is impossible. In fact, more impossible than sending some little VW Beetle-sized thing 93 million miles away. We would rather try that than rest and wait patiently. And actually, being able to rest and wait patiently is impossible if we ignore the formula. Wait, what formula? I didn't know about any formula. No one told me there was a formula. I know. That's why I am. Rest assured, God never assigns you a task or gives you a job or even tests you without some instruction first. The command to rest in the Lord and wait patiently actually happens in the middle of Psalm 37. It's all the way down to verse 7. Most of us don't realize that because whenever we've heard this taught in church, we just assume rest and wait patiently is verse 1 because everyone starts there. Well, that's not the case. It's not verse 1. It's verse 7. God's preliminary steps come first. There are certain things you have, listen, they're not just going to put a rocket somewhere and then light the wick and send it and hope it gets to Mars. You can't, it doesn't work that way. There are some things that you have to do before you can get something where you want it to go. There are certain things you have to do before you get to verse 7. You want to know what I consider the key, the key verse to all Scripture? Not just Psalm 37, all Scripture. The key verse, I believe, to everything that God commands us. Some of you probably can guess because you've heard me use this verse before. Unless you grasp and believe this verse, you and your efforts to become a Christian will be frustrated. You will not be able to do it. And these are the words of Jesus himself, so that's someone that knows what he's talking about. He says, I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me ye can do nothing. You can't rest and wait patiently. You can't not take the Lord's name in vain. You can't properly take the communion. You can't properly glorify God. All of that is wrapped up into this key verse. For without me ye can do nothing. He that abideth in me and I in him, 
the same bringeth forth much fruit. This is a very vague verse. There's no specifics. The only thing that's specific is the one who's in charge of making it all happen. That's the only specific. There's no specific when it comes to the fruit, and there's no specific when he means you can do nothing. The word itself means nothing. You can't rest and wait patiently without following the steps. And let me tell you something. God asks a whole lot of you. If your preacher, minister, priest, or pastor has told you anything differently, he is a thief and a liar. Now, I could give you dozens of verses to prove to you that God asks a whole lot of you, but I'll give you just one because all of his other demands are wrapped up in it. Again, the words of Jesus, lest you decide to try to water it down. Jesus himself commanded, Be ye therefore perfect. And in case you dare to misinterpret what he said, he decided to say it all. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. John, are you trying to depress me? Not at all. I'm just reading scripture to you. I'm just reading to you the words of Jesus. Remember, you're a Christian. He's your Lord. He's your captain. He's your commander. He's your king. And he says, be ye therefore perfect. I'm trying to get you to realize that God expects a lot out of you. You see, God has literally impossibly high standards. In fact, the entire Bible, the entire Bible, including the law, is structured to get you to see that God has impossibly high standards. And then declares and demonstrates, also in his word, that he will not compromise those impossibly high standards for anything. In fact, he demonstrated he has impossibly high standards that he won't compromise by sending his only son to his death simply to uphold the integrity of those impossibly high standards. God does not mess around with his high standards. To him, it was either save his son or lower his expectations or hold firm and sacrifice his son. That was the choice God had. Either save his son and lower his expectations or hold firm and sacrifice his son. What's your point? How does this apply to Psalm 37.7. If it seems impossible to rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him in yourself, then you are finally getting to a fuller understanding of God's word. What God expects of you, you cannot do. Not without him. And really nothing else matters. I've said to you many times before, your purpose, your life's purpose has been given to you by God. So don't look for it anywhere else. You were created by God. Your life's purpose was given to you by Him. Therefore, it is in that that we search. You can't rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him without the following. Also from Psalm 37, it's a part of the formula. This is the formula. It is impossible because you can't do that on your own. But if you follow the formula, you can. 
Here's the point of all of this. Psalm 37, verse 4, delight thyself also in the Lord. You know, to the modern 21st century Christian, I may as well be speaking a foreign language. If I knew how to speak Hebrew and read it to you, you would be no less lost than when I read it in the English. Delight thyself also in the Lord. I'm on record as saying, and I'm repeating here, that when the rapture happens, the world is not even going to notice. You know what I mean by the rapture? When the church, when the believers, the body of believers that is alive at the time, right before the Lord comes, when they get sent up to heaven, you know what the rapture is. The world's not even going to notice. If Jesus comes on a Saturday, there is little doubt in my mind that in most of the church world, Sunday services will go on as normal with no appreciable reduction in the pews, nor in the pulpit for that matter. You see, we aren't taught from the Bible anymore. The Bible says, delight thyself in the Lord. But that's not what we've been told in church. We've been told that the Lord should be delighted in us. We've been told that we should work so the Lord is delighted with us. Look what I've done. Look how wonderful I am. I run the coffee service after church, and I took the pastor to the airport yesterday, and I pressure washed his parking spot, and I dusted off the Bibles, and I said, praise the Lord and amen the entire time through the sermon last Sunday. Just don't ask me what he was talking about, but I'm sure it was right on point. Praise the Lord. God should really be delighted with me. I know I am. If I'm... Listen. If I'm delighting in me, if I'm delighting in anything other than the Lord, there's no way I'm going to rest nor wait patiently for the Lord. If my delight and my focus and my joy and my happiness is in anything other than the Lord, then I will not be able to rest and wait patiently. I will never find joy. I will never find peace. God says, delight thyself in him. It's an instruction. Now, I hope that I've convinced you over the years that we have to look at God's word differently than we do just about anything else we read or hear. We have to shake off all of our customary ways of seeing things. Delight thyself also in the Lord is, strictly speaking, a commandment. It's in His Word. We do it. But for many of us, being commanded to do something isn't always received enthusiastically. Many of us, most of us, don't like to be told what to do. I'm guilty of that. In fact, we may argue, hey, don't we have liberty? Aren't we told that we're free? Isn't that what Jesus died to give us? Aren't we free to do as we see fit, including delighting whatever we want? Not by works, but by faith. Isn't that what the Bible says? We've been taught wrong. Becoming a parent is one of the most valuable, blessed spiritual lessons I have ever received. For me, being a father myself has unlocked so many biblical mysteries, and that's why I like to use parental analogies to try and explain God's dealings with us. I once convinced, I was once convinced that Samantha had EOT2D, 
Sounds ominous. You, you know what EOT2D is, don't you? EOT2D is early onset of terrible twos disease. I tell you, when she was about 18 months old, she was one of the most headstrong children I'd ever seen. It seemed that no matter what I told her to do, she had an argument for it. And of course, the common argument for when they're a year and a half is nothing more than a series of whines, fits, and flops. Now, you good parents know that you just kind of have to ignore those things and stick to your guns. You direct your child to do something. They moan and refuse. You correct. That's the way you raise children. That's the path of success in bringing them up. Though it's not viewed favorably in our society, whenever Sam didn't do as she was told, she would be punished. Now you would say, well, how, do you, how did you punish her? My answer is none of your business. But let's just say she usually got the point. But I will tell you, I was never the kind of parent who would say, because I said so. Now, of course, there were times when explanations were not offered in the moment, because very often the moment was neither the time nor the place. Many, many times, immediate obedience without explanation was required, for instance, Taking the time to explain the dangers of running toward a busy street is not a good time when your two-year-old has a, has a full head of steam toward the corner. A loud, high-pitched, if necessary, angry-sounding stop is more expedient given the circumstances. However, I have discovered that simply barking orders is generally a bad idea. We have a responsibility as parents, not just in raising our children, but we have a responsibility of raising godly children. We have a responsibility of showing our children what being a child of God is like. You see, our earliest goals as parents should be to teach our children to rely on our judgment and not their own. If you're seeking input from your two-year-old before moving ahead on a family decision, you're going to have problems. They may be lovely, wonderful, bright little cherub, but they don't have the capacity to contribute to most discussions. God's ways are not so foreign as you may think. We must convince our children that we know more than they do, just like God must do with us. Just yelling only creates resentment, and they never learn anything. As time goes on, you continue to be their guide. You give them the right tools. You spend enough time together, and before long, something really wonderful happens. You spend enough time together. something amazing unfolds. As you all probably know, Samantha is nearly an adult now. But that doesn't mean the, her mistakes have stopped. Though extremely rare, there are times when correction from me is necessary, but it's, it's different these days. There's not much to be said. She's mature now. The best I can do anymore is point out her mistakes and then, listen to me, 
then I must rely on her maturity, but more importantly, I must rely on her love for me to do the rest. If I've spent enough time teaching and she's spent enough time paying attention and we've spent enough time cultivating trust and loving each other, I don't need to do much more than expect her to see the error of her ways and fix it. At some point, love must overcome fear. At some point, I have to trust the process. At some point, encouragement must supersede punishment. At some point, doing the right thing must be the strongest motivators. But that takes work. It takes time. It takes patience. Now, you know, of course, that Samantha is not just being raised by me. I just want to make sure you understand that I use the father-child analogy because it, it better explains how God is with us. But Catherine is a full 100% participant in this raising of this wonderful woman as I am. You understand what I mean. Now, if you, listen, there are going to be setbacks along the way. If you expect a mistake-free road while raising kids, you're only going to be disappointed. But if we're, if we're doing our job as parents properly, there will come a time when our children will be mature enough to realize that what we ask for them to do is for their benefit. Therefore, delight thyself also in the Lord is not something that immature Christians can process. You have to get to know God before you can delight in Him. Otherwise, you have nothing to delight in. I know you're probably tired of hearing me say it, but this is how this works. You have to know a person before you can love them. That's what this book is for. Samantha didn't learn to trust me overnight. It took a lot of work on her part and a lot of work on my part. I had to clearly lay out the expectations and she had to intently understand them. And now she does things and does not do things out of love for what is the right thing. But the point I want to make about this commandment business, this being told what to do business, is that after a while, you realize that God's word is, yes, full of commandments that will just so happen to be also good advice. Delighting in the Lord is good advice. But you have to get to know him before you realize that. You have to move on from thinking the Bible is a rule book to realizing that it's a love letter. You'll never discover that until you stop listening to what others say about it and find out for it yourself. You see, when people tell you that the Bible is only there to keep you from enjoying life, that just means they don't know a thing about it. Probably have no idea what it contains and certainly have not spent more than five minutes reading it. All they probably did was listen to other equally uninformed critics. Once you spend enough time getting to know God, you'll not look at delighting in the Lord as a requirement so much as a good idea.
you know, eventually. The Holy Spirit's influence in your life is going to be so powerful that you're going to eventually find it difficult to remember what life was like before he arrived. Do you even remember when life seemed aimless, when it seemed like you, whatever you pursued, just kept getting further and further from your grasp, that perfect job, the perfect mate, the perfect place to live? You wanted all those things so badly, and you even worked hard to achieve them. You spent so much time thinking about, planning for, and acquiring those things you thought you desperately needed. Do you remember what that was like? I suspect for most, those memories are still fresh. For many, those experiences are happening right now. Why must life be so hard? It all comes down to what you delight in. When the Holy Spirit comes into your life and you allow Him to work in it, your delights change. Legend has it that someone came to Martin Luther after he realized the power of grace and someone said, Martin, isn't it wonderful that you can do whatever you want? And Martin says, yes, but now I find my wants have changed. Sometimes you get all those things that you thought you wanted so badly, only to find out that they never filled the hole you thought they would. Maybe that marriage wasn't all you thought it would be. Maybe that perfect job ended up being as frustrating as the time you spent in the drive-thru at the jack-in-the-box. Yeah, you get more money, but your boss is just as much of a jerk and your co-workers are out to get you and the customers. That never changes. If it wasn't for the customers, I'd be happy. Oh, John, that, that brownstone you, you bought on the park is absolutely gorgeous. You must be so happy there. Yeah, well, the, I don't have a brownstone. It's just a story. Yeah, well, the taxes are killing me and the plumbing is old. And my neighbors have a smelly cat that keeps using my stoop as a litter box. Life can be a little confusing and almost always disappointing. It depends on what you delight in. Listen to Alexander McLaren explain. Quote, the great reason why life is troubled and restless lies not without, but within. It's not our changing circumstances, but our unregulated desires that rob us of peace. We are feverish, not because of the external temperature, but because of the state of our own blood. The very emotion of desire disturbs us. Wishes make us unquiet, and when a whole heart full of varying, sometimes contradictory longings is boiling within a man, how can he but tremble and quiver? McLaren continues, One desire unfulfilled, listen to this, tell me how true this is, one desire unfilled is enough to banish tranquility. But how can it survive a dozen dragging different ways? All eager longing tears the heart asunder. Unbridled and varying wishes then are the worst enemies of our repose." Unquote. The reason our life, before we discovered Psalm 37, was so unsatisfying is because we had our hopes and dreams and happiness in temporary things. We delighted in temporary things. Everything we think is, that is going to make us happy 
either we'll outlive or it will outlive us. We become so attached to things in this life. And that attachment is so easily broken by something as mundane and commonplace as the passage of time. I will never forget just a few moments after my mother died, looking at the little painting that we had, that Catherine had made for her, sitting next to her bedside in her hospital. I was so mad that thing, that, that thing survived and my mother didn't. We delight in the most foolish things. When God says, delight thyself in the Lord, delight thyself in me. It's good advice. It, it's one of those things that almost seems foolish to point out. It seems so obvious. I feel like I'm insulting you for bringing it up. And yet, this truth is almost universally ignored, even by people who never miss a Sunday service. And it's precisely why we view resting and waiting patiently as something impossible. Because it is impossible when we're not delighting in the Lord. When we are delighting in anything other than the Lord, resting and waiting patiently is impossible. I must trust you got the point. I think anything else I could say from here on out would be nothing more than filler. Do you want to know the secret of achieving the impossibly high standards God holds us to? Priorities. What is it that you hold dear? You think you have it rough. As hard as it may be to rest and wait patiently, imagine what it must have been like to face a crucifixion. Worse yet, facing a crucifixion for the likes of me and you. Imagine being asked to go to an inconceivably agonizing death for a bunch of down-low, low-down, dirty, rotten scoundrels like you and I. I know it's not a popular opinion, but I'm going to let you in on a secret. And you may not find it all that uplifting. There is no way Jesus would have gone through what he went through if it were just for me. There is no way, there is no way his love for mankind, which is mighty, don't get me wrong, but as mighty as it is, it would have not been enough to get him to endure the torturous life and death that he experienced. I'm sorry, but we're not worth it. Okay, Mr. Insult, then why did he do it? Jesus achieved the impossible because of one thing. He delighted in the Father. Delight thyself in the Lord, and nothing will seem impossible. No more. Nothing will be impossible, because you'll only seek that which will please Him, and He's going to help you with that. And when that happens... Then your resting and waiting patiently will be a prelude to great joy. You've been listening to Time in the Chapel, a weekly program dedicated to bringing you in-depth biblical study. Join us again next time as we search scripture to learn more about God in your life and you in His plan. Time in the Chapel is a service of Chapel Ministries. Chapel Ministries is a non-denominational ministry with a mission to feed hungry souls. Please consider supporting this program financially. For more information, please visit our website at www.timeinthechapel.com 
or email us at info at Be sure to look for us on Facebook by searching for Chapel Ministries. Click follow to get all of the latest information.